Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by M&M's Caramel. Have you tried M&M's Caramel yet? Caramel has been square for far too long, and M&M's is doing their part by giving you that familiar flavor in a package you love, surrounding the smooth caramel and delicious milk chocolate. As always, M&M's knows how to bring spontaneous fun, just like, oh, I don't know, giving out awards for summer movies that we might love. With M&M's Caramel, we can all agree that caramel is more fun than ever. So go grab some M&M's Caramel today and let your taste buds go for a ride. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Disney's stranglehold in my brain. I am joined, of course, by Amanda Dobbins. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Sean. And Chris Ryan. What's up, man? You ready? D23! (laughs) (laughs) We're, of course, gathered here to talk about a number of things. Among them, D23, Disney's biennial announcement slate of forthcoming projects. Later in the show, I'll have an interview with the writer-director, Paul Downs Calazo, who's got a new movie that just hit theaters last weekend called Britney Runs a Marathon. It premiered at Sundance. It was purchased by Amazon. We had a great chat about that film. And then later in the show as well, we're also going to be talking about our summer movie awards. This has been a very bad movie summer. However, some bright lights, some dark stars. We're going to talk about both of those things. You like that? little astronomy this morning. And uh, I think we have to go into D23 right off the top. Amanda just told me that she read a, a thorough examination of the announcements made at this, this weekend event. How are you feeling? Are you excited about the Disney Plus era upon us? Yeah, but you have to do this as Juliette Binoche from nonfiction. <laughs> Chris finally watched nonfiction this weekend. <laughs> just the blog. Um, I, it was clarifying. Okay. <laughs> it was clarifying, I, I think, for Disney and for me, uh, possibly in different ways. You know, Disney has a strong brand, as we know, and it is uh, quite clearly articulated in this. And I think that there will be many people, including parents and Star Wars fans who have and Marvel fans who have a lot to look forward to. And I will be sending my streaming money elsewhere. Very interesting. Not surprising take from you. Chris, you are the co-host of a podcast called The Watch. Yeah. A long-running podcast Uh that looks closely at culture at large, but particularly television. Yeah. There are a lot of TV shows in Disney+. Plus. Here's my take on them. Don't care. Uh, I'd like to talk to you guys about the movies that were announced. Yeah, sure. Okay. Aside from The Mandalorian, I do care about that. I just want to say. <laughs> well, I, I, don't you care about all the... There are two more Star Wars movies. Uh, uh, TV shows, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, theoretically. The Mandalorian is the only thing I have a clear sense of what it is and what it's going to be, which actually okay. does feel like the Star Wars show that we should have had like 25 years ago. Uh, yeah. Very like uh, grounded in the dirt small character look as opposed to the intergalactic battle kind of TV show. The other shows, I, I don't even know. What are those shows? Isn't there a Ewan McGregor, Obi- Obi-Wan Kenobi say it, show? Say yeah. it. Say the whole thing. Right? I, I was just like, <laughs> I think he's Obi-Wan. Even as I was saying it out loud, I was like, oh God, am I getting the names right? Am I getting the names right? Have you guys ever just been like, Amanda, we're going to do a Star Wars episode you should host? And she <laughs> she has to like... Get... Have I ever told you the story of... This is a, a fun game to play if you're like in a car and really bored is you can ask someone to just tell you the plot of a movie. Um, My husband and I do this sometimes. And we uh, maybe we should just do a podcast of that sometimes because it's really wild what people remember. But famously, I was asked to do the plot of Star Wars and I gave the entire plot with like intense analysis of the sexual tension between Luke and Leia and then also Han Solo and the trash shoot and all this stuff and just like did not mention the Death Star. The sexual tension like, between the Han Solo <laughs> and the trash shoot? Wait, what? You know? <laughs> They're in the trash shoot and oh, it's very Oh, I thought dramatic. you were like, it's a metaphor. Like, that stayed yeah. with me, but like, I, and I even got Darth Vader, but at no point did I mention like the Death Star them blowing it up. Like the central plot of the movie just didn't exist in my brain. Spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> 
we have revealed here officially that the Death Star is destroyed <laughs> in Star Wars A New Hope. I'm very sorry to everybody who hasn't seen episode four. Chris, what'd you make of uh, the movie news? Non, Non-Star Wars edition. So we got some Marvel news. We got a, a little look at the Lady and the Tramp live action. Yeah, so... I, for most of my life, Disney has been like a non-factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't. I never really grew up in a Disney household, and a lot of these um, sort of legacy titles don't really mean a lot to me. I don't even know if I actually have seen Bambi. You know, like for instance. Hmm. Uh, so a seminal I, event in movie history. It's interesting to have the doorway into Disney as Marvel and Star Wars for me, but now being introduced to this huge volume play, and that that is kind of going to come attendant with. All of this stuff. And one of the things, as we probably talk about when we get into the Summer Movie Awards, that's been kind of uh, confusing for me this summer is having to take things like Aladdin seriously. Uh, Have you been doing that? No, but it's (laughs) like that takes up a lot of airspace. Have you seen either Aladdin? No. Yeah. So you're not taking it seriously. No, I'm not taking it seriously. But wouldn't you say that it plays a larger role in like pop culture in general because the like the volume of the megaphone is that much louder? Probably. Like everything builds everything else. And now you've got these three things, the Disney legacy titles, Marvel and Star Wars, to say nothing of Pixar and everything else, that take up, I mean, this is what you're saying, the stranglehold on your brain. It's like 65% of the airwaves, man. It's true, although in 1992, Aladdin was a big deal too. So if you were hosting The Watch, which I don't know, what would it have been called in 1992? Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah, exactly. If you were hosting Smells Like Teen Spirit, the podcast. Yeah. You could get it on your Windows media player. <laughs> it takes six days to download. And you would still be forced to talk about Aladdin in some form or fashion. But you're right. The the the, the amount of mind share that they have right yeah. now obviously is overwhelming. And this is, I mentioned this is a biennial event. It doesn't happen every year. The fact that it happened at this exact time while we're going through, I mean, Amanda, me, you, and Wesley just had this conversation last week on the show where we were like, we are being choked out. You know, Brock Lesnar has come to choke us out with content. You guys get that reference? I, I do. Is okay. it a, it's about wrestling. That's, he yeah. wasn't in fighting with my family. You're though, right? no, today. No. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> You've been spending too much time on this podcast. Um, I, I, it is interesting. Like I, I, I could not help but see the announcement around Black Panther two and just how far away that is. Yeah, we are a thousand days away from Black Panther two. That's a long time. It's a. It's become a cliche to say we're all going to be dead by then or the world will be on fire. But it's possible that some things are significantly different in culture at large a thousand days from now. Like we may not even have TVs in a thousand days. I don't I don't know what's coming. So to be planning that far ahead for something, particularly something that is so anticipated. Yeah. I thought was so strange. I thought it was almost like teasing in a way. That's so funny because I had the opposite reaction, which is like this thing that we have been predicting for a long time, which is Disney is Monopoly is here. This we have seen the realignment of the studios and the streaming services and kind of what the big names are going to be. And we've been like, well, and Disney's just going to own everything and Disney will have this movie and Disney will have the streaming service and the Mandalorian and all of this IP. And this was just a confirmation, a certainty of, okay, they have consolidated all of the IP is together. They have their distribution plan ready and Disney Plus and what we expected to happen is going to happen. And I have an easier time imagining how Black Panther 2 is going to fit into entertainment as we consume it than I do, like, basically any movie that a traditional movie studio is releasing or even most of the TV shows on basic cable at this point. But I think that the interesting thing that came out of some of these announcements between Black Panther being 900 days away and Spider-Man being uh, excommunicated from the MCU is that... um, there are a lot of people waiting online, you know what I mean, to get in to get their big screen time. There's a lot of characters, there's a lot of filmmakers, there's a lot of producers who are all like, 
So this was like a huge hit. And we've got to wait like four years. And my guy's got to be in like a couple of 30-second spots in post-credit sequences of the Eternals. That's what you're telling me? It's like that. I'm not saying Black Panther would walk away from MCU. I don't think that he, you know, Michael B. Jordan's not going to get going to do that. But the Spider-Man thing I thought was indicative indicative of Sony being like, let's go. Let's let's do another one. Most definitely. But I think it's because while I think, Amanda, what you're saying is right, that the playing field is kind of settled in a way that it's at least for the next six to 12 months, it's going to be Disney Plus versus Netflix. And then HBO Max will come along and then, you know, Universal will clarify what their play is. For the most part, we know what the short term clarity is around things. But three years from now, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's going to, like, I think movie theaters might close three years from now. I don't know if we will have 4,500 movie screens three years from now. So getting that far ahead of ourselves, I think you're right, Chris, that there's a desire to kind of plant flags. There's, oh, there, there has been, I mean, Mark Harris has been writing about this for coming up on 10 years now. This sort of like, we plant our flag on a film that we don't even know what it is seven years ahead of time. Black Panther 2 in particular, though, struck me as weird because it might be after the rise of Skywalker, maybe Avatar 2, the most anticipated movie that exists that we are aware of in yeah. the world. Mm-hmm. is that, Am I overstating it to say that? Well, and I think that Avatar 2 is a good example. I mean, not that it's going to go... But Black Panther is the weight between Black Panther 1 and 2 is nothing, nothing resembling Avatar and Avatar 2. But it is indicative of the fact that I think that like, Without seeing a single piece of footage, I think a lot of people are like, does anybody still care about Avatar? Yeah, I was going to ask, who is anticipating Avatar 2 besides James Cameron? I don't know. I don't know. But underestimate James Cameron at your peril. Because this is what happened with Titanic, and this is what happened with Avatar. People were like, is this going to be good? I don't know if I care about this. And then, boom, biggest movie of all time, and then, boom, biggest (laughs) movie of all time. Twice he did that. Twice people were like, I don't know, he lost his fastball. He's a weirdo. He loves to play with his toys, doesn't understand humanity. So it's a, I wouldn't underestimate Cameron. That's sure. all I'm saying. Um, I'm going to name some movie characters for you guys. Tell me if you know what they're from. Thena, Icarus, Cersei, Ajax, Kingo, Druig, Gilgamesh. No? So I'm assuming it's not Icarus and Cersei from Greek mythology. No, though I suspect that they are inspired by those then titles. Then I have no idea who you're talking about. These are Eternals characters. We got a new Eternals character announced over the weekend is name is Black Knight, mm. a.k.a. Dane Whitman, mm. and he will be portrayed by Kit Harrington. They got two Game of Thrones guys in these movies. Yes. In fact, two brothers have been reunited. Yeah. And uh, I got to be honest, I don't really know what's going on with the Eternals. It feels like this is moving in the opposite direction. It's happening too fast. I'm like, who are any of these people? Didn't you feel that way about Guardians? A little bit. Do you think that that's what this will be? I don't know. Guardians feels like a very unique proposition where it was like this is in space and we're going to introduce all this stuff but really just come for the one-liners yeah if there's also a gilgamesh here then this is based on mythologies and amanda all of the comic books are based on mythologies yes but some of them are about space aliens and some of them are about like things i care about so like spider-man yeah no (laughs) spider-man is based on being a teenager spider-man is based on puberty a mythology that we all have to experience that's right of all these things that were announced in the marvel world that's the one that i'm the most interested in because it's the one that i least understand how they're going to do it and what they're going to do and it's very starry at this point, aside from the two Game of Thrones alums, you've got Angelina Jolie, you've got Salma Hayek, you've got Brian Tyree Henry, you've got Gemma Chan, you've got a lot of Kumail Nanjiani. It's a lot of famous people here. Um, I did want to talk to you guys just a little bit about uh, the two Pixar movies that were announced. Thanks so much, Awesome. Um, I know you guys don't care for them, but I do want to just 
describe yeah, the go plot. Ahead. Why don't you go ahead and do this? Thanks so much. Amanda, you left a helpful note here uh, for Onward, which stars Chris Pratt, which is the next Pixar film. Which, wow, you didn't even put that in the outline. Uh, Unsubscribe. Which will arrive in theaters in the spring. This movie centers around two elf brothers who lost their father at a young age. Why is it always got to be at a young age? Let's get some old elves, you know? You want a story of old elves <laughs> losing their father? Isn't that that's a more natural thing to have happen? <laughs> that's true. I suppose that's true. I guess I don't really know how elf families work. Well, traditionally they live a long time. I guess <laughs> if we're if we're talking, never mind. Really helpful, guys. <laughs> the, the second feature is called Soul, and this feature focuses on the question "Why am I here?" and tells the story of how each person on the planet received their soul. Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey will star. Yes, I'm, Tina Fey is what I think of <laughs> when I think of deep existential questions for children. <laughs> Um, Didn't she make this movie? The one about moods? I think that was Wine Country. No, but what was the one where it was like, I have like a sadness creature? Um, Inside Out. Inside Out. Inside She's out. not in that. No. And Inside Out's really good, That's actually. Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler, my bad. And and this, well, the sadness one character is really affecting. I no, I, th- I saw that in a movie theater. Really? Yeah. I just couldn't remember anything about it because it's a drawing. I'm really glad I asked you guys to be on the show today. Um, A couple of other films that were announced. Dwayne Johnson was there with a movie called Jungle Cruise, which is based on the ride Jungle Cruise. Some iconic photographs of Amanda Dobbins at Disney World circa 1992, I would guess. Wearing a safari outfit or... No, just being like, oh, well, there's a fake alligator jumping out. Yeah. Is is Jungle Cruise still fake? Have they made Jungle Cruise? Am I thinking of Safari Adventure? That's, are you thinking of Lion Country Safari in Florida? Probably, yeah. Yeah. So Jungle Cruise is fake. I, what, what it you was mean, like, when I wrote it, or whatever I wrote in at Disney World in 1992. Okay. I haven't the, been back to Fairfax. The ride itself. Yeah, I yeah, mean. yeah. Um, you know, Jungle Cruise is, is, is sounds When's that fine. drop? I think, believe it's next summer. So is that, how do you think that's going to tie into Liz Warren's campaign? I don't know. I don't get that joke. What does that mean? Because Liz Warren and The Rock have like a mutual appreciation. So Liz oh, Warren I see. loves I see. ballers. And <laughs> I then don't get that joke. The, the, uh, hold on. No. He, he was literally reading Elizabeth Warren's book on the season premiere of Ballers. Here's my take on Jungle Cruise. It's directed by Yom Colette Sarah. Do you guys know what movies yes, he yes. made? Yes. The Shallows and The Commuter and Run All Night and Nonstop. He makes deeply fucked up crime movies, and he's directing a Dwayne Johnson romp that probably won't feature Elizabeth Warren. I if doubt I had it, to guess yeah. Bob but Iger's politics. Maybe it'll Do be you, Crawl who? Two, and they'll finally investigate how to escape an alligator on land. I smell a crossover event. <laughs> yeah, I love okay. the idea of it. Um, there's also some Fox movies that have been shit on uh, throughout this year, but maybe now they'll get some respect. Ford versus Ferrari was how have they teased been aggressively. Shit on? Well, um, recently, Bob Iger, in a call about earnings, basically placed a lot of the blame on Disney's down earnings on the failure of several Fox films that they inherited that they oh. did not develop themselves. Ford versus Ferrari, probably the first one that they're really putting their their back into. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it'll be a big-time Oscar contender, and we'll talk more about it on this show later this fall. Chris, this is on your corner, but there's a Breaking Bad movie? Mm-hmm. This was not a D23. This was Netflix, I, I if I had to guess, actively... They- uh, activating you mean against when air quote someone leaked yeah air quote accidentally <laughs> air quote that there was a breaking bad movie in six weeks yeah yeah that seemed to be um a very noted jockey back after all this d23 uh-huh what do you make of a breaking bad movie uh i can tell i hear cynicism in your voice well i'm i'm unsure we had the same cynicism when better call saul debuted you're and right. better call saul is one of the two or three best things on television you're right if they want to make a breaking bad movie i am pretty sure it will be pretty good this movie's out in seven weeks. It's been done for a while. 
Sorry, I stopped listening to you guys. Do you not but like Breaking I'm Bad? I'm glad that you have it. You don't like Breaking Bad? Too stressful for me. It's just also like, you know, I, it's good. It was great. Congratulations. We can't move on. We're Liking all, TV we're all, is not a if we're all stuck in the recent past or the, the past, let it be break Breaking Bad then rather than Aladdin. That's my take. What would you rather have, Aladdin or Breaking Bad? Books. Yes, I would rather just like. Well, that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> and watch Succession. I would like to watch great stuff. I would like excellence. Okay. How about that? Okay. I think El Camino has a high probability of being excellent. I'm hopeful as well. They just didn't need to do it unless he had a good idea for it. I'm left with a slightly bad taste in my mouth after the Deadwood movie. And I'm a little bit concerned about yeah, this Yeah, but there execution. are mitigating circumstances to that. You of know? course. Yeah. I, I don't hold that specific aspect of it against the people, but the idea of returning to a story in this format so later on. And this, the same problem was true of the Veronica Mars movie. Now, they brought Veronica Mars back as a series, and it was wonderful. When they made it a movie, it felt compressed, it felt fan y and it didn't really feel like the thing that we loved in the first place. So... I have a, a, maybe a mild layer of, of cynicism about this. Though I, of course, will watch it on October 11th when it premieres exclusively worldwide on Netflix. How was that for a sell? Should we talk about Summer Movie Awards? Yes, though you changed the categories. Yeah, I did, I did. Because I, I, you had two categories that you had were the best performance in a bad movie and the worst performance in a good movie. And I answered those questions honestly. Let's, let's talk about both of those categories okay. then. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> You can't do this. We prepared. No, These I'm ready. Are, I can, we I, do I, our homework. Here's what can happen. I can do whatever I want. Okay. Well. <laughs> and in this case, I've decided to do whatever I want. Um, let's let's hear your answers on those categories. We're gonna. Some of these will be uh, silly and irreverent. Some of these will be obvious. We'll talk about the very best movies that we've seen this this summer. We'll talk about some of the most ridiculous stuff we've seen this summer. I did want to kind of play with the idea of best performance. Um, so I originally was positioning best performance in a bad movie, worst performance in a good movie. Worst performance in a good movie seemed like a, a a really mean kind of category, uncommonly mean for what I'm trying to do here. So I've I felt some resistance to it upon reflection. But if you feel strongly about what you've put down here, no, Amanda, I don't really. I had a joke that started with me putting Kate Blanchett in best performance in a bad movie, and then Kristen Wiig in worst performance in a good movie. Oh, that is a good joke. Yeah, thank you. Okay, but I don't really feel strongly about either of those, and we just talked about them recently, so we can move on. Okay, Chris, do you have anything you want to say since I changed the categories? That some 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 bids that you had that you want to make a note of here for like best worst performance yeah. in good bad movie. Yeah. I had a I had a best supporting performance in a bad movie that I wanted to shout out, but it seems weird to lead awards with it. But why not? This why? is this is like opening the Oscars with best supporting actor. Austin Abrams in Scary Movies Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Which one was Austin Abrams? He was the kid tr- pretending to be Kiefer Sutherland from Stand by Me. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh he was in like a, he's been in a bunch of like teen teen movies like he was in Paper Towns and stuff like that. He's in Euphoria. He plays Cat's boyfriend. Uh, and he's just like really doing a lot in a role that does not require it. And uh, he is going to start in the reboot of Less Than Zero on on Hulu. And I don't know, he's playing the Andrew McCarthy character. I'm, I, I really, really like him, though. A thing I really like about you is like you really have your finger on the pulse of teen entertainment. <laughs> I'm not as not as sarcastic. Well, you it's, actually it's really the minor do leagues, you know, that's, where, the, that's where a lot of, you know, everybody yeah. comes from there. It's kind of that's pretty good range that this kid is Cat's girlfriend and the most punchable person on earth in scary stories yeah. to tell. Yeah, and he was her. in The Walking Dead. He was on The Americans. He's like been around. He like doesn't do a lot of interviews. I think he takes his craft really seriously. What? Yeah, seriously. Just I, just keep an I, eye yeah, out. Austin Abrams. I am skeptical again, but okay. 
I, I trust your radar, so I appreciate that suggestion. I uh, also had a best supporting and a worst movie. Yeah, please share. I'm an A student and I do my homework. Oh, of course. Uh, Keanu Reeves, always be my maybe. I'm yeah, just putting yeah, that out there. Yeah, that was good. That that got quickly forgotten. Not by me. I feel like it really pierced the bubble. It popped the bubble of, of cultural consciousness. And then we just moved on. Mm-hmm. Have yeah. You, have you moved on, Chris? I've moved on from that movie. I would also say best performance in a bad movie, uh, Emma Thompson in Late Night. I have that on my list as well. What about Hugh Dancy in Late Night? Any thoughts on that? I, I still need well, some happened? answers Where about what happened to that character. Yeah. Out of that yes. movie. Yeah. yeah, I need some. I need some Is it clarity a around that. Scheduling issue. Like yeah. what was going He's on? He's got to go be in Wandavision. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he um, plays the butler in Wandavision. Let's do a little bit more down the middle stuff. Let's yeah. just do best performance. What was the best per- leading performance that you saw in a movie this summer? Well, I the obvious one is Leonardo DiCaprio. I agree with Amanda Dobbins. I wrote this down as well. Yeah. But I, How do we make this not just a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the podcast? Issue. Is the challenge. Yeah. Uh, I would also say that Naomi Watts and Loose is is. Oh as, boy, are we going to do this now? As good as I've seen Naomi Watts be in a really long time. Let's wait on Loose. Okay. I have some thoughts on Loose. We'll okay. hold it till later in the show, and also we'll let people listen to more of the episode before spoiling Loose. I think Amanda has been gearing up to discuss this as well. Um, you guys I, recommend movies, and then I go see them, and then that's what happens. So it's on you. It's on us. Uh, I also wrote down Brad Pitt. I was compelled after listening to Bill Simmons and Wesley Morris talk about this movie that perhaps Brad Pitt is the star of this movie and should be in the leading actor category, even though when mm-hmm. the three of us first spoke about the movie, I was fairly certain it was going to be Leo, best actor, Brad Pitt, best supporting actor. Maybe not. Maybe it shouldn't be. Um, did you guys listen to Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino talk about the movie? I did. Not yet. Okay. I will, though. So on the DGA podcast, they had a conversation about the film, and um, it seems that we know we know PTA is a big Leo fan, but he seemed quite taken with Brad Pitt in this movie. Yeah, I just wanted to say that that, that podcast made me feel much better about my skills as an interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> because Paul Thomas Anderson is be like, Quentin, fucking Brad, in this movie, I mean, he was like the cool version of Chris Farley. And I was like, oh, I'm okay at this. I relate. I'm not nearly as bad as this as I thought I was. I don't think that's bad. I think that's honest. It's amazing the, how- The fucking like, lights go on <laughs> when the when the neon, and it's like, it broke my heart. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. <laughs> that's great. I think he would fit in on this podcast. I think he's he put just it. like an inch more sass on PTA than he like, may have had. If you think about it, it's like you worry so much about like what you're going to say about like the Quentin Tarantino movie. And then the guy who made the master and there will be a blood is like the fucking lights. <laughs> <laughs> it's heartbreaking. <laughs> it's, I, I appreciate that. It's a honest way of talking about movies. It's nice. Yeah. That we, we don't have to be fancy. I much prefer that to some film school bullshit. So PTA doing D23. Fucking Moana. Okay. <laughs> I watched it four times a day for a year. <laughs> Broke my heart. Uh, I, fabulous PTA goes right in the Hall of Fame with Bobby Sony and Johnny Greenbook. This is really fab PTA. We got it. We got to memorialize this one. Some of your best voice work to date. Um, what were we talking about? This this we movie, Brad Pitt, Brad Leo, and, and being a, an actor. who's the who's the lead and who's supporting. I, I still think Leo is the lead, but Brad is kind of the three three quarter lead. You know, yeah. he's in so much of the movie. Well, I just think like responsiveness is a form of acting as well, and he is the person who's reflecting a lot of Leo back. That's the function of the character, but presence is so much of what Brad Pitt does anyway. And I really do think it's a rare form of acting. So, and he does a lot of that in this movie. And it's not the type of performance that we traditionally think of as lead because you 
you know, dummies want to sit out here like counting lines. But I wonder if they'll both run. I mean, that seems strategically really stupid. It does. It does. And I, I, the, the tricky part is, is that Brad has not won and Leo has in this category. Now, Leo's not going to take a, take a seat on the bench. That, that wouldn't be a very Leo thing to do. But I wonder if Sony and the movie puts a lot of energy behind him. Anyway, it, it's evident to us that those two guys are, mm-hmm. if not the winners, certainly in the category. I wrote down a couple of other people. I did as well. I wrote down Florence Pugh in Midsommar. Mm-hmm. I wrote down Himesh Patel in Yesterday, which is, you know, I think a movie that you and I quibbled over a lot and didn't love. But he's kind of going for it. And for a person that I've never seen before to be able to sing Beatles songs in front of in, at Wembley is like, you know, it's, it was impressive. I thought he was great. I had him in good performance in a bad movie. Okay. Um, and I also wrote down Beanie Feldstein. I did as well. In Booksmart, which maybe is was a little bit swallowed up by the conversation around Booksmart and mm-hmm. whether it did or did not fail. Also, the, the Andrew Luck retirement of movies. It kind of was, wasn't yeah. it? It kind of wow. slipped into that Saturday news cycle. Yeah. Um, Looking back, Booksmart's now made $23 million, which was pretty good now that we've seen what all these other movies have made too. So all of that... I don't know. Uh, all that energy we put behind that conversation. I, well, I had to scroll for a long time on Box Office Mojo <laughs> to get to Booksmart. It, it, it's better than where Late Night went, you know? It's, it's better where a lot of these movies went. I mean, like, Britney Runs a Marathon, who knows how that movie's going to do, mm-hmm. but that movie was also bought for a lot at a festival. It's hard to say. Can I also throw out Maya Erskine for Plus One? I finally yeah. saw this movie. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yes. I thought it was very fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, we were t- I was talking to our pal Juliet Lemon, and she was like, I thought it was terrible which I, I couldn't understand what she was talking about. She's one of the queens of the of the genre. I think, I agree with her. I think it's a tremendous performance. The flaw of that movie is that it's a movie about the guy character and like who gives a shit about him. That's true. Yeah. That's true, and it is. And she, when she is on the screen, it's like, it's transcendent. And it is really kind of a breakthrough for her. But it's, it's less a rom-com and more like Mopiella. A guy has to figure out some really obvious things that he should have known for Years. What do you think Chris and I liked about it? Okay. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I haven't been single for a while and it was still really too soon on that front. I was just like, move on, move on. Also, they shouldn't wind up together because she's way better than him. So that's tough. I I would say that I think her, her, she had some problems of her own. That's, we're all flawed was my takeaway from the film. Yeah, but everyone can be flawed and there can still just be a power imbalance. That's all I have to say. Power imbalance. I don't think that that's what this movie is about. But Khrushchev and Kennedy. <laughs> Plus, my Erskine yeah. banging her shoe on the table at the UN. It's love. What happened? That's okay. great. Uh, she she is. I really hope that she gets the opportunities she deserves because between Pen Fifteen, Wine Country, and Plus One, she's had a great summer, mm-hmm. and I'd love to see somebody put her in a big movie that um, asks a lot of her. Any other lead roles, Chris? No, I think we covered the ones that I was pretty You got one more, Amanda? Honor Swittenburn. Yeah, good one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. The Souvenir. This is not the last time we'll talk about The Souvenir on this podcast. No, I I finally read that story, too, and I I couldn't believe that she was cast in Rebecca Mead's story in The New Yorker. I couldn't believe that she was cast two weeks before they started filming. Yeah. In an effort to kind of capture, um, I don't know, a kind of like innocence and insouciance, I guess. I, I, I couldn't really figure out. I got the strategy that she was going for, but it's kind of amazing that she's so good and she didn't really prepare to do this. It is part of what makes the performance amazing is that there it, there is no performance. And yeah. that movie is astonishing because it just captures uh, a mood and a time in life and feelings like really in a raw, natural way. Uh, and so it makes sense for her being a first time actress. If she had the preparation, she, you might overthink it. 
Um, but I thought it was mesmerizing. What about supporting performances? Can you guys think of any that you loved this year? Hmm. Would you like me to suggest one? Yes. I thought Jamie Bell was great in Rocket Man. He was. I, I think it was. It's kind of. It's another movie that is kind of quickly lost to time. Remember how long we talked about Bohemian Rhapsody? I felt like that was nine consecutive months of Bohemian Rhapsody conversation. Obviously, it's Rocket Man has been paired with Bohemian Rhapsody for obvious reasons, but. Rocket Man just doesn't come up. I went to a Dodgers game yesterday and it was quote-unquote Rocket Man night, which didn't mean anything. There was no representation of Rocket Man other than it showing up on the screen. They didn't get out they free did things. Did they play Did Elton you go late? Neither. Was there like little pianos mm. instead of bobbleheads? No. Sometimes they give stuff out, but only at certain gates, which is unfair. Um, if there was any giveaway, I did not receive one. Um, <laughs> I was just, sitting in fairly modest I'm just modest thinking about the seats. Chris is laughing at me, but I'm thinking I'm not, about I the, just, the cool Rocket Man swag that yeah, I'm just imagining your me. next door post about, like, I did not get <laughs> no, my Corey Seager bobblehead because I went into gate six. I did get my Corey Seager bobblehead and I gave it to a little kid because that was nice, but they weren't giving them out everywhere. That's how I know. Well, the LA Dodgers did not give me anything related to Rocket Man, but I am giving Rocket Man some love for Jamie Bell. Hey, can I just say that it does seem like the there are now two movie years, which I'm sure that you guys have talked about before, but it does seem like if you put something out in the summer, it's just like 99% guarantee that people just aren't going to talk about it because of all the superhero movies and, and reboots and cartoons. Yeah, I wonder. It's I, like I just, there the, so much of this stuff, and we'll talk about this later, where I'm like, ah, good movie. Interesting. Wonder why we didn't talk about that one or why we only talked about how it didn't do well. And it's like, all that stuff is gone now. I think is counter-programming dead is an interesting question because yeah. it might be. We might not really have that anymore. Um, last call for... I have two more. Yeah, go ahead. From the same movie, uh, Diana Lynn and Sao Shizen from The Farewell. Yeah, they were great. Fantastic. The parents. No, the... Um, at, at least I believe... I, I'm sorry if I got the names wrong. I'm trying to isolate the, the mother and the grandmother. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. I also... I, I shout out uh, Baikali Ganambar from The Nightingale. Uh, you know, I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. I, I, it's, it's like, honestly, like a really tough hang, but he's he's incredible in it. Wesley was raving about that last week yeah. as well. Uh, any other supporting performances you want to shout out? Anybody from Men in Black International that you thought really distinguished themselves? You know what? I think Chris Hemsworth is charming on screen, but that was not his most charming, and that was not supporting. So. Are we counting Endgame in our, in our summer movies? I think we awards? should. I think it kind of is where it starts, right? I have an endgame scene for okay. the next category. Okay. Great. Favorite scene. I'll share my first one, which was just the out of time montage in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is my favorite part of that movie now, yeah. right? When the sun goes down and Cliff goes to pick up Leo from a day's work and they're driving along and we see LA changing in real time. We see their lives changing in real time. Mm -hmm. Amanda, what do you got? I have Brad Pitt on the roof. Just can't what about? <laughs> what about it? What you what did you respond to? In addition to the physical attributes of Brad Pitt. I, that just really feels like the lightning bottle moment for what Brad, like Brad Pitt season. I was having a conversation with Kaya McMullen last week, and for a different podcast, we were preparing awards, and she wanted to put Brad Pitt in Best Comeback, and I was furious at her because he never <laughs> went anywhere in my mind. But there is this energy coalescing around Brad Pitt, and it has something to do with the fact that he looks great shirtless. Uh, but it feels like that's where it starts. And also, I enjoyed looking at it. Chris, what about you? Did you enjoy gazing upon Brad Pitt's 12-pack? Of course, man. I loved, I loved watching him do old-school handiwork. Uh, 
My, what about his parkour leap to the top of the roof? That was good. I I mean, like I I read a couple of there was a bunch of interviews with um gosh Par- the, parkour experts. No, well, who's the uh, who's Zoe Bell? Yeah, and she was you know they were talking a lot about like, like stunt what woman could extraordinary he do that only he could do to get up to the roof and mm. stuff. So that was was pretty neat. Uh, my favorite sequence. This is a weird fave. I wouldn't say it made me feel good. It was the opposite, but just in terms of filmmaking uh, expertise, uh, would be the cold open opening sequence of Midsummer. Very good. Very uh, upsetting. Was, like, as punishing as it gets. I'll never watch it. I'm honestly waiting until Midsommar comes out on DVD or DVR or whatever. VOD? VOD. That's the abbreviation Pay I was looking for. Yeah, yeah, whatever. So that I can just fast forward through it and watch the rest of it. Um, I It's all kind of traumatizing. So you might you may, you may be holding the fast forward button down. But it's like, as the way that you two described it, there's uh-huh. just like the real life traumatizing and then the the funny stylized traumatizing that's true that's fair yeah so i think if you skip the first 25 mm-hmm. minutes and just took our word for it you'd be fine okay i was i took a trip back to my adolescence at the movies this summer um mal rubin and i saw endgame uh, on the disney lot and you can imagine the kind of people that get invited to that screening of avengers endgame and they were very raucous and they were very enthusiastic and they were very emotional and the sequence in endgame when um there's a there's a fight sequence between Thanos, Captain America, and Thor and Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Iron Man gets his ass kicked. Thor gets his ass kicked. Cap is kind of the last guy standing. And we see a, a hammer move. And then the hammer finds its way to Captain America's hands. I was like, I'm 11 years old. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. The people in the movie theater were screaming. Like, not, not just like, oh shit. Like, like that long <laughs> they could not control themselves there were people who had been waiting their whole lives to see something like that now did that color my reaction and if I were sitting alone sure. in, in my house watching it on my phone would I have had the same sincerely emotional reaction no but circumstances are meaningful and how we see movies is meaningful right yes Amanda you did not have the same reaction to the scene well, I take it so as you were starting to describe it literally what I thought in my head was like is that when they're all in like the purple scene I don't know what that means. You know, but it's just like everything's like really muddy oh, and they in there in the CGI the space. And it's like it's purple right before mountains. that. Yes. But when once they're in that other world that I, like I just kind of didn't know what was happening. I think I remember the hammer and I don't think I saw it with Chris. I don't think oh, I had yeah. to turn to you and be like, what does that mean? I think contextually I was able to. Figure it was understood. It out. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say that it stayed with me or that I know a lot of the myth, uh, mythological associations. No one can pick up the hammer I think except I had for to te- Thor. Oh, I texted that's you afterwards. That that what it, that's what it was, Chris. I texted you and I was like, what was the deal with the hammer? Oh, yeah, because it's like, is he worthy? Yeah. yeah. He was worthy. But yeah. I knew he was worthy. He's really hot. That would be funny if he wasn't worthy and Thanos won. And that was how the MCU ended. I don't, I don't have a comment. The hammer that. happens. <laughs> fucking heartbreaking. <laughs> PTA, come on, the big picture. Any other scenes, Chris? Uh, no, my Midsummer one is, is pretty high up there. I would say, uh, yeah, then, then the, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but like, yeah, the out of time montage on, on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I agree with you. It's yeah. like my, you just really feel like you're leaving your body when that happens. You were, you've raised your hand, but we're on a podcast, Amanda. Well, I know, but I always raise my hand. Uh, Maya Erskine dancing at the wedding at the beginning of Plus One mm-hmm. is it's really the only scene where I literally watched it at home and I rewound it and watched it again, which is not something I do for anything. And it's tremendous. I really felt like it spoke to me spiritually. 
And then Charlize Theron doing a terrorist negotiation on Molly in Longshot. I thought that was great, too. That, that, that actually is a good segue right into the Why Didn't This Work Award. Because mm-hmm. speaking of seeing a movie in a raucous theater, Sean and I saw Longshot at South by Southwest. And it was like, it was, it was hysterical. Like, people were crying with laughter. Then the cast of Longshot walked out and did like a victory lap and Boys to Men played. And it was like, this is going to be a blockbuster. This is going to be a big hit. That's what I said. And it wasn't. Nobody cared at all. Why, why did that happen? That nobody Theoretically, cared? I think I know a lot about this stuff. That one in particular, I'm like, what happened? Here? Okay, so here's the argument. Is that it's like two or three movies at once. Nobody wants to see anything political. Yeah. And also, nobody bought Seth Rogen and Charlie's Throne. That's those are my those are my counters. When has that stopped Seth Rogen before? Yeah, I just also I don't think people are thinking that deeply about it. It came a week out a week after Endgame, and stars two people over the age of thirty five. So no one wants to go to the movies to see it. I think it's as simple as that. I'm sure there are a lot of people who have since like bought it on demand mm-hmm. and had a nice time. That's the other thing. It's you don't have to go to theater to see it. You can watch it at home, and it's a very fun time. The question is whether or not people will still make movies like that if nobody goes to see them in the theaters. Right. And if they do only make them for Netflix or Apple or whatever, what changes about them? They don't spend as much money on them. They don't spend as much time on the script. They're not as funny. They're not as memorable. So that's that's that, yeah, that's so optimistic. That's I'm, well, we no, were I'm serious. It's a very it. bad thing. And I watching Longshot, kind of even regardless of the whoa, this is going to be a big hit quality. As I was watching it, I was like. This is just a good old-fashioned Hollywood comedy. Mm-hmm. I love a good old-fashioned Hollywood comedy. If done well, if the writing is good, if the if the performances are fun, um, didn't matter. Are we I, unanimous mostly, on that? I'm mostly worried that it's actually an elevator pitch issue too. Whereas like there's so many movies now where you can just be like, they've remade this. This is the sequel to that. But this is like, okay, so he's like a journalist and she's a politician and then they like, but they knew each other from high school and then they like, they bump into each other again when they're adults and he's down on his luck and she's ascendant but then they like hook up and it's just fucking amazing and they're like, and then you're like, but what does that, what does that mean? What is it? Is it a remake of broadcast news? Like, like they, people want like the easy package for it and I'm not trying to be like in 2019, we've somehow broken it, but like, it does seem like the simple act of trying to explain an original piece of content to someone is more trouble than it's worth now. I have an example or an answer to this that's kind of the counter to that, which is a movie with a great elevator premise pitch that did not work at all, which is Yesterday. Sure. And that was one where, like, there was so much talk about it, both on The Ringer and, like, in the world. Uh, of People knew what it was. You could understand it. It's like, what if the Beatles didn't exist? And then that's a large group of people across ages and demographics were like, oh, huh, maybe I'll go see that. I think that was just an expectations game, though, because it had such a... Are you, are you saying that it, it did well or it did not do well relative to that expectation? I mean, it did okay. Yeah, it, but- did, it did pretty well in the, in the context of a movie like Longshot. You know, it made like $70, $80 million and like a, more than $100 million overseas, which is not incredible. But given that we do feel like, as I said earlier, we've been choked out by mm-hmm. Endgame and Shazam and all this other stuff this summer, that's not that's not bad, and it probably didn't make, cost a ton of money to make that movie. So I don't whether like the elevator pitch movie is dead is kind of hard to say. Um, that was one that I I, I I think we both felt like this is a hundred and fifty million dollar movie. It's going to yeah. be a fucking sensation, and it wasn't that. But Longshot made like fourteen million dollars, mm-hmm. like a very very small number, maybe less than Booksmart, which is just crazy to think about. But it did. 
it just, but it almost would have helped Longshot more if people were like, nobody wants to see Longshot because of Trump. Like if it, there was like some sort of like if Trump had been like, this is a bullshit movie. That didn't work for First Man though. That's I mean, true. you know, it, it, the, the, I think I think you were right the first time around, which is that it got there's something toxic about anything that is political, and people don't want the politics in their comedy right now. So to me, it's just a distribution issue. People don't want to go see romantic comedies in the theater, especially when they have like a ton of them on Netflix all the time, and they're not as good. But people don't really care, and it's, I think also distribution and timing because it really did come out a week after Avengers. We're running low on time, so we got to bang through some of our categories here. Worst reboot. We had so many contenders for this award. Quick thoughts? Did you have, do you count sequels in here or just simply reboots? Uh, ish. I mean, I think that reboots were kind of redefined this year because of things like The Lion King and Aladdin, where it was like, is that a reboot? Is it right. just a remake? Is there going to be an Aladdin 2 now? I, I, I think that all of that falls under the same. I don't think Toy Story 4 is a reboot. Sure, okay. Um, I wrote down Men in Black International, which is just one of the bigger what the fucks of the year. Um, I have one of those. Does, is Hobbs and Shaw eligible for this? Eligible for this. Um, sort of. It certainly starts us off on like an expanded Fast and Furious universe, which we had not had before. Right. So I think it qu- probably qualifies. The Hustle. That is, that is a reboot of yeah. the of the of the what is the name of the original? The Dirty Steve Rotten Scoundrels. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Wow. I think The Hustle is more successful than Hobbs and Shaw personally. I mean, as a in, film, as a or, film yeah. not as a obviously box office wise. I still haven't seen The Hustle, so I can't speak to it. I also wrote down Shaft. Why was there another Shaft movie? I saw that movie in Europe because uh, the rights to it were owned by Netflix. So it was just on Netflix when I got to Europe this summer, even though it came out in July. Can we just say a special shout out to Dark Phoenix? Yeah. I mean, that might be the worst movie this summer. Mm. That was that was truly confounding. And also and I the watching complete that movie. opposite experience movie watching than you had from Avengers, which is getting a fire alarm in the last 45 seconds of the movie and having to wait 20 minutes to see... 15 seconds of X-Men footage. That was a tough beat. Yeah. That was not not an ideal experience for Chris and I. I imagine you'll never see Dark Phoenix, Amanda. No. Okay, congratulations to you. Best reboot. Um, I've come around on Pokemon Detective Pikachu. I'm, I'm putting that out there. It's amazing what a little bit of time, distance, and a very poor summer can do for the way that we imagine these movies. Now, was Pokemon Detective Pikachu good? I don't know. I don't know. Is anything good anymore? Aside don't from get too down on it. Captain America caught a hammer. That was good. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Aside from that, everything is just sort of fine. I had the Lion King for this. No, I can't abide that. Okay. I wasn't able to answer this question. Best sequel. You just added this in. I don't Avengers. know. It was Avengers. What about John Wick 3? It was pretty good. Mm. Yeah. Some dissent. Too long? Uh, I, th- I'm not interested in the John Wick story. Wow. I liked the commercials for The Secret Life of Pets, too. <laughs> That's how I know we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. I wrote down Best Surprise as an opportunity to talk about Loose. I think I feel like Amanda wants to uncork on loose right now. I don't have to do it right now. I know that we're I, perhaps it should be a you know what? Maybe it actually shouldn't be a different conversation. It didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't even like it. I just kind of felt like it failed to do the things that it was trying to do. Provoke? It didn't even really provoke me. I, I because the questions that it raised were not even unresolved. They just didn't. They didn't establish the main character. They dropped in a lot of hot button issues that they just didn't develop. I, you know, I'm not a parent, so I don't need like the parenting newsletter from the New York Times in film form, which this felt in a lot of ways. It's true. I, and so, but I just, I didn't. <laughs> it's a good, like on the poster, I'm not a parent. So, Amanda Dobbins, comma, the ringer. 
<laughs> but it's a good pull quote. I, it it felt not even half baked, but it didn't bring together enough of the threads to really uh, provoke me. I think Chris and I disagree. Okay, we've briefly chatted about this. It's a, it's the sort of movie that um, is never going to get a wide release, so it's kind of hard to be like, what we're going to do is a deep dive podcast on a movie that's made 1.3 million dollars yeah i, I mean i also see. barely like read anything about it. it was just like a kind of random saturday decided to go to the movies that was like the best reviewed thing that was there that i actually wanted to see and it was just i was like holy shit that was like genuinely surprising and interesting i had a and you had a kind of opposite yeah. experience where we were like you should see this it's mm-hmm. quite interesting check it out and that's that's tricky i've seen both reactions i've seen some people say this is totally totally phony bullshit like you know, overmanaged playwriting mm-hmm. set with a movie. I like overmanaged playwriting. I, I do too. I think that's probably part of why I responded to it. I think it might have worked better as a play, obviously. And then I think, I'm, I know that it, it was, was a originally play, a play. Yeah. Yes. I thought most of the performances were great. I thought that the center performance of the loose character didn't work. And that was a major problem in it. Um, I, I suppose it's interesting, except I think, honestly, I didn't find it interesting. I found it a little, like, intellectually stunted. Let's skip ahead a little bit. I don't think we need to uh, horror movie of the season. It's it's got to be Midsommar. And yeah, I would just toss I wrote it. that down as well, and yeah, I haven't seen it. Haven't seen Headcount. I would also turn, toss out if people are looking for an that. iTunes horror movie to watch. I think I mentioned you that did. before. Yeah, um, I wrote down the Dead Don't Die too, which I feel like also just kind of came and went, but was like a very fun movie. Not a traditional horror movie, but if you like the Jarmish tone, go there. What the fuck movie of the season? Uh, did you, either of you guys see Godzilla King of the Monsters? You know what? I have to be completely candid with you. I did not. And I was like the KOM meme lord for like <laughs> two months. I was like, I'm fucking the king of monsters. When they when that movie comes out, I'll be walking around with a Godzilla mask. Charles dances up in this. Kyle Chandler. I can't wait. And something, I don't know when it came out, but like something basketball related probably happened. And I was like, I'll see it next week. I'll see it next week. And I was like, and I cannot. And seeing Godzilla King of Monsters on like my laptop seems idiotic. I'm sure I will see it one day, but it's just one of those things where no one came to me and said, you have got to see this movie. Yeah, the same thing. Sean will usually go and send out an indicator of, yeah, it's you should see it or you can totally skip it. And this was just straight skip from you. And so I didn't go. I don't think I had a single conversation about this movie, period. I don't know anybody who saw it. It's a Godzilla movie yeah. <laughs> that features like five monsters. And they've already got another Godzilla movie planned, right? Yeah, it's Godzilla versus King Kong, which is, I think, coming next summer by Adam Wingard, yeah. your boy. So very, just very strange for a major studio to release an IP thing like this. The previous two films in the series did really well, King Kong, Skull Island, and Godzilla. And people were like, eh, I'm good. I'm all set. Millie Bobby Brown, who cares? Charles Dance, fuck it. Vera Farmiga, I'm good. Kyle Chandler, no. <laughs> This is really random. weird. Well, you said Millie Bobby Brown and I was thinking about, I was looking on Instagram this weekend and my friend had Instagram like a line, like a Supreme drop in Soho this weekend just to see Millie Bobby Brown. And that's, oh that's what it was. But it's like, people don't need to go to the movies to see Millie Bobby Brown. You're they right. can just do that. So, Best indie. Got a pretty good feeling. I know where you're going, Amanda. Mm-hmm. Souvenir. I thought you would say farewell. No. I, I mean, I really liked the farewell. I. Uh, I just assume that the souvenir counts for summer since it was after the Avengers. And that was also a surprise in a great way. I just went to this movie, even though Sean had said, like, I think this is going to be Amanda movie. And a couple other people had indicated that. I've thought about it so much in terms of discovering a filmmaker, like an, an actor, just a mood transcendent. What was a big mood for you, Chris? Sort of trust. Oh, you like that? I love that movie. 
And it was just kind of, you know, it's a Lynn Shelton movie starring Mark Maron. Mark Maron, who I never would have called this eight years ago, is like one of the most reliably interesting character actors alive pretty, right pretty now. Pretty good actor, yeah. Uh, and uh, he, it's just like pretty pretty small movie. It's Jillian Bell, Michaela Watkins, Mark Maron. It, it kind of feels a little bit like a 70s movie that you would sort of catch on Turner Classic or something like that, like Straight Time or something. But just it's just... It's amazing that they made a movie like that because this is this should be like a Sundance or IFC channel or something like show probably. But they just it's a great little movie about weird people living in the South. I like that one a lot. Uh, I also wrote down the art of self defense. Riley Stern's uh, uh, I don't know hand to hand combat psychodrama starring Jesse Eisenberg. Very strange film. I watched that movie uh, in a kitchen of an Airbnb at South by Southwest. Not the ideal place to see it. Still very effective, even in that setting. Best movie of the summer. Are we unanimous? I think so. Yes. Let's not overthink it. King of the Monsters? (laughs) No? Pikachu? (laughs) No? No. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Anything you want to say about this movie right now that we haven't already said 300 times? You know, I think... Everything I've said about it in public, including working through the discourse and some of the conflict, all of that stands. I saw that movie twice in theaters and had a great time and still think about it. And you just can't say that for literally anything else on this list. There are movies I still think about. What about Cap with the Hammer? uh, There's movies we like. Certain aspects of Cap in that movie from time to time, quite frankly. But Joe Biden Cap? In terms of just a movie theater experience and event, which is kind of what we think of when we think of summer movies, right? Is that it's something that you anticipate and a lot of people see. It's kind of a blockbuster. And it's really the only thing that comes close this summer. Chris? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what, you know, like just throughout this conversation, like what what happened to uh, that counter-programming idea? I'm trying to like ascribe, you know, like was there a Thrones drought? Like was it because of Thrones taking up six Sundays or whatever? Did we lose a day of a weekend for a bunch of movies that may have, like, people might have been like, eh, I guess I'll go see Thrones. Or I guess I'll go see Longshot because even, but they're like, now nah, I'm staying home. I'm going to watch Thrones. going to have some people come over. going to have Grill or whatever. I don't know. I, I, I can't figure it out. I mean, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, is like a tier of one to me. I agree. I, and two is pretty far down. Pretty much the same for me. I've been weirdly satisfied, pleased, calmed by the fact that it's been a big hit. And I, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's more of a like last of a dying breed kind of a thing, but a lot of people have seen it. it. Its controversy was inevitable, and I think it's ultimately been good for the movie. Sometimes that kind of controversy can be very bad for a movie. I think it's driven a lot more interest in the movie. It's kind of a reason to provoke and to kind of play with the the strictures of history and pop culture arcana. Um but I agree ultimately with what you're saying, Amanda, which is just like, it's just fun to be around that movie for an extended period of time, which is really all you want out of a summer movie, right? You're just like, chill me out, make me laugh, make me smile, make me cry. And then we can worry about awards when we get into the fall, right? Yeah, I was looking at like the 2009 summer movies just to see what, because also that was the summer of Inglorious Bastards, but also, um, you know, what what it had that this summer didn't have and even the movies that, like, I don't think about much or love, like Funny People or 500 Days of Summer or a Harry Potter movie, it just seems like a completely different era. You're not going to get movies like that tradition typically in summers to come. 
parting thoughts? I think it was just a really bad year for the which is I think once upon a time in Hollywood succeeds on its own terms. And it it at some points is just like a buddy movie. It's a great hang. That is the lasting appeal of it to me. But beyond that, I, I really did like the farewell. Beyond that, I just think it was a very, very bad movie. I got an email from my dad yesterday. I convinced him to finally go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in theaters because he just doesn't go to the movies anymore. He used to go like three times a week, and now he watches everything at home. And he was like, I liked it. I mostly liked it because there's nothing else to see. I, I think that's kind of it. Can I, can I do a little bit of watch Big Pick crossover? Sure. Did you guys prefer... The three or four favorite, your three or four favorite movies from the last few months versus Fleabag, Succession, Chernobyl, and take your pick of another show. Mindhunter. I'm really in the middle of Mindhunter and loving it. I'm just having a spiritual experience with the first five episodes of Mindhunter. Um, it's a very, very good question. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is superior, in my opinion, to all of those things. Yes. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of money behind Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There's a lot of star power. There's a genius filmmaker. But... That experience to me still transcends mm -hmm. even Fleabag, which I think all three of mm -hmm. us have talked about ad nauseum and just were over the moon for and thought was totally singular and great. I still would always, always, always rather have one great movie sure. than an experience like that. But that's me. And that's why this is the big picture and not the watch. I no, think. I know. I, I was more just, and I think even the way that we talk about those things is completely different. Fleabag people are watching in their own kind of like, oh, I, I finally checked out Fleabag. Good move. That's really cool. Versus like, man, People are really trying to get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that first 10 days, first six days, so that they can talk to their friends about it. And it's it's just such a different experience. But the you're you're sort of projecting out 900 days into the future of will Black Panther air on a screen or not is is like it kind of wonder whether a lot of that stuff is going to start to be grouped together. I think so. I think we're probably the only people who worry about the experience of a movie versus a TV at this point. Last generation. I think, I think so. yeah, mm -hmm. I think everyone else is just like, I enjoyed watching this thing and I watched it in the way that was easiest and best for me to do sure. so and didn't feel a lot of anxiety about it. And I, you know, it was interesting, that question, I loved Fleabag. I think Succession is the best thing on TV right now. I just watched the Boars on the Floor episode. Or, and that was Holy that moment shame. of just being like, oh my God, I am watching something. I can't believe this is happening. Right. I still feel that I get that more at the movies than I do at television. Mm -hmm. I think that's honestly a numbers game. It's because people sp still spend more time two and money on movies. Two hours of movie, you, yeah. Yeah, and you can get a higher level of results yeah. when you put that much investment into it. And that's what I'm looking for. But I, I can't honestly say that I saw anything at the movies this year that was like better than Fleabag season two. It was tremendous. Guys, I enjoyed recounting this very painful summer and, and the, the, the few bright spots we had. Uh, thank you for doing this. Thanks to Chris and Amanda. Now let's go to my conversation with Brittany Runs a Marathon writer-director Paul Downs Calazo. I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Downs Calazo. Paul, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Paul, you come from the world of theater. You're a writer. You've worked in television. Why is Brittany Runs a Marathon your first film? Well, because I wrote it first. And <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Yeah. This is the first time you tried to write a film. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I wrote it, I, I, I think I had the idea for it in, two, it was either 2011 or 2012. I'm pretty sure it was 2011. Uh, and it just felt like it, this story, you know, it's inspired by my best friend and my roommate at the time. And uh, it just, in, in, 
instantly felt like it should be a movie because of the scope of it um, and also because of the intimacy of it. Because sort of what you're dealing with is New York City and a, a woman's journey across that city as she sort of conquers herself. And then also, you know, in the movie that our protagonist is the antagonist and you have to see all of that tension in her eyes. So that just felt like when you're trying to figure out what medium the story belonged in, it has this huge arc, which, you know, is great for movies and there's a inner demon to conquer, which is, you know, great for that journey. And also just getting as close as you can to the actress's, you know, uh, inner tension for the, uh, for the dramatic effect. So, you know, you and Brittany in real life are very close friends. How does, who made the decision? You said, I want to do something about this journey that you've had. Oh, if only I were that respectful. <laughs> I, I, I started writing first, I take it. Yeah, we were having a lot of conversations about life and fulfillment and happiness. You know, I think it was 25 or 26 and it was sort of, I think it's sort of standard for people in their 20s to be like, hey, wait a sec, my life's a mess. You know, how do we fix that? That is true. Yeah. And so <laughs> we were having those conversations and out of one of those conversations very early on when I moved in, she, she went for her first run. And I thought, this is a movie, and I started writing it. Uh, I started outlining the film. And then— Is this before Really Really? Like, is this before all the other things that you were you did to come? Yes. At the time, I think, I was working on—as uh, an associate on Sister Act on Broadway. And okay. it was before any of my plays had been produced. Wow. So it really is, like, well—, well you know, Early. Yes, early. And so a few months into working on it, I said to her, I don't know if I should tell you this— but I'm writing a movie about you. And she said, what's it called? And I said, it's called Britney Runs a Marathon. And she said, how fast does she run it in? And, <laughs> okay. and then I told her some things that happened in the movie and her life started to mimic the outline. So I, that was scary and weird. And I felt very powerful. So meaning you were taking some aspects of her life as a jumping off point. Yeah. None of the scenes in the movie are recreations of anything that's happened in real life. Got it. But uh, you know, Brittany and I both, Brittany Real Brittany and I both used humor to deflect, uh, as a lot of people do. We also just love finding the jokes in little moments and found that that could, I found that that could be a way to thwart a vulnerability. And so there's some DNA that's shared between the two characters. And, you know, the inspiration came from my friend's desire to undergo this huge life change and, uh, you know, face, face, uh, face herself. And, uh, and so there are – she's sprinkled throughout it, but it's not her. Okay, interesting. And so at some point, was she like, do you have to buy my life rights? Like, what No, I, what I, I mean, you know, that's the other thing is because I was – we were so young and nothing had been produced, it's, it's sort of a pipe dream when you're sitting on a couch that, you know, we, we stole a couch from a Broadway show after it closed and that was our couch. <laughs> and, you know, you never think that this stuff will actually get made or actually yeah. get produced. So it's just sort of fun at that point, like – you know, uh, you're making, I'm making a project that I really care about and I love and I, I'm making it for me. And, you know, it's, I want her to see her journey reflected back to her in some way. And, you know, she and I have this beautiful, cyclically inspirational relationship. Um, and that was just sort of fun to feed into that, but it never got weird. We just kept looking at each other being like, well, I guess, you know, I guess I'm directing it now. I guess we're filming it now, you know, never thinking that we'd be where we are with it now. So this is seven, eight, nine years in the process. Where we are now? Yeah, if it's 2011, yeah, eight years. So, you know, you've done a lot of things, like I mentioned, in the in-between time. Was your aspiration always to be a filmmaker? Was that the first thing you were going to do? No. I mean, no. Okay, so where did you start? What was the perception of what your career was going to be when you're 25, living with Brittany and talking about, deflecting? With playwright. You? Yeah, playwright. I mean, I was focused on being a playwright at that point. 
And that was sort of coming out of college, figuring out what I wanted to do. I worked in a bunch of different capacities and in dramatic stuff. Um, and I edited sizzle reels for money out of college, you know, um, but it's hard to make a living as a playwright. Yeah. And even when you are doing well as a playwright, it's hard to make a living Mm -hmm. as a playwright. And that's something I didn't ever look up was how much money a playwright makes. And then you sort of get your check and you're like, I thought this was a big deal. (laughs) Uh, Um, but, uh, but it really wasn't until, you know, the only reason I directed this film was because I wanted to protect the script believed in the script and I'd been involved in enough projects where I saw that if, uh, you know, a director, a director can really elevate something and also they can miss the mark sometimes if it's a character journey and they're not quite on the same emotional page as, as one of the characters or a couple of the characters. And I didn't want this character journey to get lost. I didn't want it to get lost in translation. So I wanted to, in wanting to protect this journey of this woman with sort of subject matter that could be done in a really offensive way and in a broad way, I wanted to make sure that the tone was still fun and funny and entertaining, but also we were being respectful and nuanced and sort of digging in with pain, look, digging into the pain and looking at the character that we were, you know, bringing to life. So I, it was only from there that I called and I said, can I direct this movie? And they said no, which was smart and right of them because I'd never directed anything. And at that point I thought, well, screw it can we curse on this thing yes curse oh, away uh screw it <laughs> uh and uh and i put together a lookbook and a um storyboards and i flew out to la and i did a whole pitch about why i wanted to do it and they said yes and then from there on out i just started sort of like cramming like like i hadn't been to class all year and i was about to take the final exam and i just started watching as many movies as i could and reading as much as i could especially from directors who went from theater to um Film. To, so, who are your north stars here? Well, like Mike Nichols did that. Elliot Kazan, um, Elaine May. You know, works as a works as a director, as a writer, and and you know, I could feel that. David Mamet, same thing. I started looking at sort of their books on how they transitioned from what they knew as theater artists to becoming filmmakers, and um, it was really uh, it was really illuminating to see the difference in how they speak about movies and how people who are more visual filmmakers speak about making movies. Uh, And it's, you know, it's about character. It really all becomes about character. So for me, what I had to end up doing for all the technical aspects of filmmaking that I didn't have any experience with was to translate that into a language that I understood. And the way that I did that was I, it was all character. So I made the character of, you know, I made pages on the character of the lighting, the character of the camera movements, uh, the costume design, sort of what the arc was of all of those things. Had you been significantly interested in those things before you decided to direct this movie? Had I been significantly interested? No. I mean, and now I am. And I was late to liking movies. I didn't really like movies until my early 20s. Really? Yeah. I I, I have ADD, and I always thought they were really predictable, and I was never really interested in the moment-to-moment of it. I just was sort of being thinking about uh, is this efficient is this an efficient use of my time it's like you know he's gonna kill the dragon i'm i'm done (laughs) you know sure but honestly it was after i um fell in love for the first time and came out of the closet and started sort of understanding vulnerability and love and romanticism that i started to like movies and that that sort of um influenced how i look at things now at the risk of getting ahead of myself do you think this is what you're going to be doing now for most of your professional career 
I, I'm going to go where the fire takes me. I'm going to go wherever the inspiration leads me. But I loved every second of it. I loved every minute of waking up and doing this job. So you mentioned that you had to convince people to let you direct the movie. Who were you convincing? Financiers who have bought the script? No, it was really um, uh, Toby McGuire and Matt Pluff at Material. They developed – the way this film came to be is Toby came to see my play in New York really, really. We had a couple of generals, and ultimately he said, what do you want to do? We'll do it. And I said, I have this movie about my friend who's – gets her shit together training for the New York City Marathon. And uh, he said, uh, okay, we'll do that. So they bought it off that log line, and I developed the script with them for two and a half years. And then uh, – Wait, hold on. What does it mean to develop a script for two and a half years? Well, it means you turn in a script, and then you get notes, and you you turn it in again, and you sort of wait. And then they're out to directors, you know, and you're like, who? And they're like, none of your business. <laughs> but but they were never like that, you know. They were yeah. they were collaborative and, and transparent. Um, How but, are you feeling through that long process where this thing that is very close to you is being evaluated and trimmed and added to and going through stages? Well, you know, all of those stages involved my pen, which was great. Uh, and, you know, I, I was very nervous. You're that, clutching a pen right now. I yeah, weird. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I was, is that my pen? Or is that I, I have pen? no idea. That's my brand of pen. That's okay. the pen I use, so I'm taking it. Okay. But, um, yeah, I was, I did know the horror stories. And I, you know, my uh, my agent had told me, you know, sometimes writers don't get invited to the premiere in the end. And I, it was so different coming from, from theater yeah. and from playwriting. And from, you know, working on my own pilots on for TV and shooting those because you sort of— Because writer is king? Yeah, you're in charge and, yeah. and your vision is important and people care what you have to say and your words matter. And in theater, the word is literally God. So that's what's driving the choices. So the idea that I was creating something that was so vulnerable and so intimate and about somebody I loved and I, wa- I really hoped was going to be treated a certain way, I was scared. I was, you know, hopeful and scared. Um, and then, you know, and then I just, I needed to be a part of the whole process. Okay. So after two and a half years, ultimately you convinced them that you are the right person to do this. Yeah. What's the first thing that happens after that? Uh, I had to call an Uber. (laughs) (laughs) I'm remembering. I was walking down the street. Yeah. Recreate it. Yeah. I had to call an Uber and I had to get lunch. Um, no, immediately (laughs) I started, I, I flew back to New York and I started, looking at the script again, but with the director's eye. Mm. And that's something that is, was, has been so valuable to me now in looking at projects in general. I find that writing and directing are separate experiences and you should treat each process differently and separately. And so looking at it with a director's eye, I suddenly had criticism about my own writing that I wasn't able to see when I had the writer's hat on things like, you know, things, scenes that are overwritten or things that could be more visual. Uh, when I was writing them, I felt like, you know, I'm going to die on this mountain. I need to protect these words. And as soon as it became like I was looking at almost somebody else's script, it was so much easier to sort of red, red, put red X's yeah, through amazing. things and rewrite stuff. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, at that point you're looking for flow and, and sort of emotionality and that was, and, and visual poetry. And I was looking for opportunities for that in the script. So it was almost like firing myself as the writer and hiring myself to do the rewrite. So 
I, I'll be honest, I was completely taken aback by the movie. And in fact, it was just because I had the wrong expectations for the movie. Well, that's the, that was the intention. I, I, I got that impression, yeah. but I wanted to ask you about if subverting was the point. Because you see Jillian Bell, you see a very zippy trailer, you see Michaela Watkins, Lil Rel. You a see full sentence people. as a title. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you expect a certain kind of comedy. Maybe not a studio comedy, but a kind of a, a zippy indie yeah. comedy. And that's not what the movie is. That's right. Um, it's funny, but that's not what the movie is. Right. I mean, the idea is, you know, in the unity of it, doing with Jillian and doing with the character of Brittany and doing with all of the supporting actors and doing with the movie itself, the same thing, which is you take something you think you understand, which is, uh, pr- which has promised to be fun and funny and engaging and enjoyable and unthreatening. And you slowly and, and, with detail and precision, expose deeper levels as it goes on. And so that's where the film starts. The film starts where you've seen this character. American comedies have played with this character. And that's the introduction of the film. And you're going to feel comfortable watching this movie. And as it goes on, the idea and the execution was about um, making it uh, more real and more human and giving – depth and dimensions to actors and characters and a story that is not often given uh, the chance to breathe uh, with its full capacity. Did you literalize it to the producers, to the actors to say like, this is my approach to this project and this is the way it's fully conceived that you're going to think it's one thing and it's another thing. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that was part of my presentation in order to like secure myself that spot. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, had that uh, lookbook to show to actors as I was talking to them too, and the production heads too. You know, it was very specifically like we are starting in one world and we're we're landing not in a totally different world, but in a world that feels complementary and harmonious to the world we started in. It just has more bass notes, you know. Yeah, and thinking about you saying Mike Nichols, there there is a little bit of a stylistic approach there too. I feel like a lot of his movies start one way with a yeah. certain tonality, and then they make a shift, and then all of a sudden you're in a different movie, and you're like, oh. This is what this movie yeah, is. Yeah, I think I think movies and stories should evolve the same way a main character does. Mm-hmm. It's a it, you're it's an experience and you want to have a relationship with the film itself, with the characters, yes, with with the actors even, yes, but really with the film itself so that you have left that theater the way that, you know, theater in New York theater works is you feel like you've had a conversation with the piece. And when you walk away, there the memory is not oh, that time I got lost in that you know, crazy, fantastical story, the memory is, oh, that that thing that touched me, that that experience that I connected to. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in psychology and in human behavior and communal experiences. And, you know, Thornton Wilder has this quote, I think, because I've been saying all over town he has this quote. <laughs> I hope he, I'm right. He has this quote that's, film is the story of, of them and theater is the story of us. And I have always more appreciated the st- seeing the story of us. I've always liked walking out of a theater feeling like I've learned about myself or my family or my world or my friends. And in this movie, I'm trying to do the story of us, but on film. How did Jillian become Brittany? So uh, t- early 2017, I started meeting with actresses. And from our first meeting, which was at a hotel in Brooklyn, she had, you know, I'd always been a fan of hers from 22 Jump Street, especially. And I remember walking out of 22 Jump Street, just sort of like flippantly thinking, I wonder if that'll be Britney someday. And then we're sitting in this 
restaurant and she was not at all like the characters that she plays. She's, uh, you know, typically those characters are very funny. Um, and Jillian's not funny. No, that's not true. Jillian's hilarious, but you know, there, you get to see one side of her typically. And she, you know, we sat down and she had a real, uh, sort of rawness and a vulnerability in talking about the character. And we had the same goal, which was to protect the character. We knew that stories like this can get turned, uh, and, uh, flattened when the more it goes through the, the machine of bringing people on and making sure that you're having something digestible to an audience. And so she had a personal resonance with the story and she had a real uh, actor's eye for how this character needed to be played uh, in a way that was surprising and really exciting. And largely what ended up happening was I started to realize that this was a woman who had been playing supporting roles and was looked at as comic relief who was looking to change the way that she saw herself and that the way the world saw her and that she was hoping to stretch herself by pushing herself into something she'd never done before, which is literally the plot of the film. And I thought, well, that's a great match because we can do that in real time. And that's a recipe for really dynamic and exciting and raw and real performance. And she is fantastic in the film and it was a privilege to work with her so did did she actually go through a similar transformation that the character goes through yeah so the character in the movie loses 40 pounds um i did not ask her to lose any weight for the role i thought as a guy director i'm already you know i need to tread lightly in the subject matter she uh wanted to own the story as much as possible and she took it upon herself to lose the exact amount of weight that the character loses so she lost 29 pounds uh while we were before we started filming in the last 11 pounds while we were filming. Wow. Yeah. How did that work? What it, I, was it was it the sort of thing that once she agreed to do it you guys would discuss it? Would you strategize and plan be like are you sh- are you shooting in, in No, I mean, no, the idea was I mean, we didn't talk about it that way. She was she had set that goal. I knew she had set that goal. I knew that we would have to recreate her own physical transformation in one way or another and we did it with some prosthetics, some um makeup, hair, body padding. Uh, and really it was about finding the gradient moves within each of the sort of tent pole looks so that we could make it se- as seamless as possible on our budget. Um, and she, while, and she, we didn't shoot in order and she lost 11, last 11 pounds while we were filming and her prosthetic was made, you know, custom made and it stopped fitting. So we had to find solutions to fix that as we were going on. Interesting. Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, that's why I asked because there's a kind of practical element to yeah. doing something like this. And obviously there's so much Hollywood lore about right. actors who lose weight, gain weight, what that means for their performance. Yeah. I assume that that, that was a significant part of this as well. Well, I think, you know, there's a, she gives a very raw, vulnerable, um, uh, compelling performance. And I think you can see in her performance, in the realness and the what she's willing to expose of her actual self as a human, her own journey in the character, which is which is really a gift. What about for you? What was the thing that was most surprising to you when you got on set, having never done this before? Um, every time I'm on set and I go to uh, craft services, they always say to me, extras eat over there. Every single time. Three times in a row. <laughs> Um, so that didn't surprise me. Okay. So you were not flexing your authority then? No. And I'm, I just sort of go over and have those (laughs) eggs. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, what surprised me, not, you know, it was, it was all sort of go, go, go. We had 28 days to film. I, I felt really excited about the cast. We had to, whenever there was a problem, we just had to find a solution. So there was no, there was no time to sit down and 
sort of commiserate or feel anything. We we knew we had to make this thing. So like we lost power for a day and a half and we didn't have a day and a half to lose. And uh, you know, generator just decided it wasn't a generator anymore. It was going through its own Sheesh. crisis. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, really what was surprising I don't know. Any answer I give you is going to be a spin that's going to sound like really positive. You know, when people do that and they're like, I'm surprised by how good the world is. Yeah. You know, my biggest weakness is that I work too hard. Yeah. yeah. Is that I have so many strengths. <laughs> but like, you know, but ultimately what I loved about it was that it was, it was a group effort and everyone was trying really hard to make this movie work. Everybody. What about the rest of the cast? It's a little bit of a comedy murderer's row, but not necessarily operating like a bunch of comedians. Do you think that that is what appealed to this group of actors that you put together? I would hope so. I mean, I think, you know, the idea of giving people, you know, the we approached the movie like it was a drama. So we approached the script like it was a drama. But it was just a drama with people whose tactics are funny and relatable and whose minds are funny and relatable. So... In looking at how, you know, Michaela Watkins plays Catherine, the woman upstairs uh, who Brittany thinks has everything going for her. But the way that we approached all of her stuff while she had quirks and she and she naturally as a human is idiosyncratic in a way that I just eat up, you know. So we were able to like bring in her her own personality but also find the personality that is still and calm and motherly and assuring and graceful. Uh, Very cool, subtle performance. Yeah, she's just, she really is great in it. But I I feel that way about the whole cast. I don't know if it's because I'm just proud of everybody, but it does feel like, you know, what we set out to do was give these actors and these characters more dimensions uh, in a comedy than they normally have. And everyone knew that. And I, and I would hope it's what drew them to it, but it's, you know, it ultimately they, they delivered. So they knew it was part of it. Your movie played at Sundance. That's where it premiered Mm -hmm. and it was a big hit. I'm hoping you can kind of take me through the hype cycle a little bit. What is that experience like? I've for never heard like that you? hype cycle. I like that. Yeah. Um, here's what happened. I finished the movie the Tuesday before we premiered it. Wow. Right. And I didn't, I actually made a change after Sundance, which was a text message and it drove me crazy. And I was like, I'm, I'm never going to sleep if I don't fix the emoji <laughs> in this text message. Um, but, uh, that's how I know you're a director. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, uh, we finished the movie and then it was like, you're just sort of getting to Sundance. You're getting a coat. I also had had double ankle surgery like three weeks before and could barely walk. And the doctor said to me before I went, well, before I left his office, I said, I'm good to walk now, right? And he was like, just don't walk up any like icy mountain. And I was like, <laughs> tough shit, bro. It's happening. So so we, uh, so we, when you get there, you're doing press instantly. You forget to eat. The altitude's really high and you can't sleep for a number of reasons. And so, you know, I had this really... I was really worried about the temperature in the theater when, at the Eccles when we start when when we knew we were pr- going to premiere. You know, they in New York it's like very common knowledge that if you have a comedy it needs to be cold in there because people will laugh more if it's cold. And I, and the beginning of this film is, is all about the laughs. And I was like, it's too hot in here. And everyone was like, please go to the green room. <laughs> you know, and and they were they you know they thought I was just nervous and whatever. And I was so and they were right in a way and I went and I was just like secretly opening all of these doors to the outside to make sure that cold air would pour into this theater <laughs> okay. uh, uh, and I to this day think that that helped uh, helped the hype cycle <laughs> but um, you're just sort of getting ready to premiere the thing and I was standing backstage with John Cooper before I went out who was uh, you know the head of Sundance yep. and he was like, how do you feel? And I said, I think it's still too warm in there. And he goes, he said something really lovely and made a really, really sweet, uh, reassuring comment about the film and, and what he felt was going to happen. And 
then he went on stage and introduced me and I went out and in like, I guess, cliche Sundance fashion cried in my introduction speech, uh, which I really wasn't expecting. That's nice though. It was lovely. And you know, there's this, all, all these people there. So I, then I sat and I watched the film and I knew it was going well in the first three minutes because we had to turn up the audio because people were laughing so loudly they couldn't hear the lines. Not to overpromise. It's not that funny. But, you know, <laughs> but I knew that the audience was engaging. And then when the credits came up, you're yanked up stay on stage for the Q&A. And, as I, and I didn't realize and, or didn't think about the fact that people would be tweeting as soon as the credits started. And so I was walking from my chair to the ramp on the side, and I passed the film's publicist, and she goes, Twitter's good on my way up to the podium. And I was like, what is happening? So we did the Q&A. I walked off stage, and a woman who I did not know when we went backstage grabbed me, sobbing, sobbing, and just kept screaming thank you over and over again. And she was like, that girl is me. That girl is me. Thank you so much. I thought, okay, well, we've done something beautiful. For her, good at outcome. Least. Yeah. yeah, I hope we've done that for other people. And very quickly, I started to get text messages that were like, you know, it's a, it's starting. Uh, and by that, it means sort of the interest. And you go, I mean, you, me, me. I don't know if this happens to everyone. You go to a house on a mountain, and the buyers start coming in and they've got marketing materials of your movie already made. They have posters already made in the hour and a half since it was done or two hours and they have decks and you know, they're they're It's really great. They're so enthusiastic. And you know, you go through that twice with each buyer really. Well, hold on. So you've had some success in your career. You've won awards. Your, your plays have been very well received. So this isn't like the first great thing that's happened to you in your career, but is it significantly different than, say, working in the world of New York theater? Like, do you feel like I'm in another universe? I'm living on another planet? Yeah, I felt like I was in the 70s. Like, I felt mm-hmm. like I was in some movie situation in the 70s where people are sort of like, you know, in a booth at a bar talking about what they're going to, what move they're going to make. Yeah, I love it, your picture. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. It felt... It felt also like sort of what you hear about. You hear about those Sundance bidding wars in the middle of the night. And I, you know, at one point I just started laughing. I I was just sort of like, what's going on? What are we talking about? And then it gets down to business, you yeah. know? And then it's time to start really figuring out what's what's the best home versus in tandem with the financial prospects. Well, what did you want? Because we're at this very yeah. complex moment in terms of theatrical releases, in terms of the way that indies perform. Right. Like, you're a very smart person. You obviously see the way that the, the playing field is operating right now. So were there things that you went into this process knowing you wanted? I wanted to be at Amazon. The reason I wanted to be at Amazon was because of the big sick, because of the way the ah. big sick was handled. I thought the Big Sick was uh, accessible, and I thought it was lovely, and I thought it was uh, endearing. It was based on a true story that was like a simple personal true story. Uh, and it had both a great theatrical life, and it had, you know, accessibility in homes and on JetBlue flights across the country. That's true. Yeah. And I loved that. Love JetBlue. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they have flatbed seats sometimes. Yeah, that's true. So Well, um, they will for you now. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, – so I, I I went in there wanting Amazon, but also, you know, a company is only the people that are there, and it was new people. And when Amazon came, they brought fourteen people into the meeting, and went, one for each million, one for each million. <laughs> 
they handed it to us yeah. like that. Um, like it was a graduation ceremony. Um, and uh, and they all sort of went, talked about their personal relationship to the film and how much they loved it. And, you know, uh, I, I, and my, my mind wasn't made up. It was just sort of the dream scenario I was looking for. Um, and, you know, that's where, we, that's where we ended up. And I'm really happy. How are you feeling about putting a movie like this out in the world, given the state of theatrical releasing in America? Um, fine. I'm, yeah. I'm excited. I mean, I'm curious, uh, but ultimately I, I made something that, you know, a, as an artist, things can go so many ways and you have to make little sacrifices. Sometimes you can't win them all, but I've learned that the goal for me, at least is to make a piece of art that I can stand behind that I'm proud of. And I can stand behind no matter what happens. And I've made that. And I feel really good about that. So you started writing this film in 2011. Uh-huh. I think you started filming in 2017, right? Yeah, 2017. So, so it's been a long process. Have you been working on other stuff during this? Do you have a sense of where you're going? Yeah, yes, but I've never, I haven't been able to give anything sort of the full attention it deserves uh, because everything keeps coming back. You know, we're still. I thought Sundance would be the end of sort of. Uh, focused on that film and that was the beginning of focusing Here we are, on that seven film. Months later. I mean, yes, yeah. marketing materials and all that stuff and Amazon's been really great about being collaborative with all that stuff, but you know, part of part of the job is is get making sure that this is delivered to the world in a way that mm-hmm. that represents the film. Um so I've been able to work on stuff. I've been working on a screenplay for I did two years of research and I've been writing for another year, almost a year now on that. Uh and I'm interested to look at that sort of in a month. It, it's funny as the date approaches for this thing to be released, I can feel this other part of my brain sort of electrifying again and coming back to life and looking at um, things in a creative way. And, you know, uh, and as I was, you know, I read, I started reading scripts after Sundance, which I'd never done before because I had never been in this role and this situation. And, uh, and now some of those, now I'll be waking up in the middle of the night being like, oh, what was that script, you know, from March that I read? It's really exciting to sort of turn that on. Would you do that? Would you direct something that someone else had written? I think so. I mean, I, I at this point, I'm not going to say no to anything because I never would have thought that I would have directed a movie, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I want to, look, I want to entertain and inspire and provoke and like find, create empathy in a world that is losing it by the day. And however that happens, I'm happy to do it. Paul, we end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing they've seen? Are you seeing many movies or television shows? Oh my God. I've seen my movie like 14,000 times I can imagine. What's the last great thing I've seen? I wish that you'd give me this as a heads up. Oh, it was two nights ago. What was it? I couldn't sleep because I was jet lagged Mm -hmm. and I'd never seen Carnal Knowledge. Oh, speaking of Mike Nichols. It's fantastic. Yes. This is that was the exact movie I was thinking of when I said to you, Wait, it starts one way and it ends another it way. It is fantastic. I was like eating what the hotel has written on them as fancy cashews, but they're just cashews. It's just a way to salt, charge you seven fifty for them. Yes. And I was just <laughs> popping those open and eat, watching that movie. It was so good. Yeah. And like filled with subtext and the way that it was shot was so theatrical. It was just excellent. That's a that's a perfect recommendation and a, maybe a perfect uh, double viewing experience with Brittany Runs a Marathon. I don't know. Maybe not. Okay. <laughs> Paul, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you to Paul Downs Palazzo and thank you, of course, to Amanda Dobbins and Chris Ryan. Please stay tuned on this feed. Later this week, Amanda and I will be sitting down to do a little fall festival preview, which I suspect will be very important for the Oscar race. 
and the Oscar show is coming back soon. So stay tuned to this feed to hear more.